Let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, the Psalms tell us that if we are to build something and you are not there, we build in vain. Uh, If we are keeping watch over a city and you are not there, we keep watch and in vain. If we are to hear the word or preach the word or sing the word or see the word and you are not here, we do so in vain. And so we ask that your spirit would accompany your word in power. It would make it effective in our hearts and it would cause us to be more like Jesus today and to give you worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So St. Patrick was a a young man um, enslaved at 16. That's what he thinks, 16, by Irish pirates who escaped. He then later on escapes back to Britain or the English area and later comes back to the Irish, the people who enslaved him, to preach the gospel and is, you know, known for being the first who brings Christianity to Ireland. He wrote a short autobiography called uh, The Confessio. You can literally Google St. Patrick's Confessio PDF and read it for free, and it takes about 30 minutes to read it. It's very short. In one line, he writes, in the same spirit of Paul here in Colossians 4, 2 through 18, he says this in his Confessio, I bore many persecutions, even chains, so that I could give up my freeborn state for the sake of others. Our passage today, though some commentators take, uh, they break it into two kind of separate parts, uh, verses 2 through 6, where they call it about prayer and evangelism, and verses 7 through 18, where they call it greetings. In reality, it's actually should be seen as uh, consistent with chapter 3, 22 through chapter 4, verse 1, which was the household code for bond servants and masters. Bond servants and masters. This should actually be seen as not Paul just randomly transitioning out of the household code to just this like last second greeting, but rather using the household code as the foundation for what he's about to say now to all Christians who are of the household of God. Uh, so let me, let me point this out. Um, you know, in 322 through 41, he basically says, Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly. And then all of a sudden, Paul switches to our text today. And so let's look at how I don't think he's actually transitioning. The, the, the main phrase that carries into our text is that we have a master who is in heaven. In Greek, the word master is Lord. We have a Lord who is in heaven. And so look at verses 2 through 18, our text today, and I'll show you this slave slash prisoner or chain theme that goes all, all the way throughout. Verse 3 Paul mentions prison. He's in prison. Uh, It's actually the Greek word for he's in chains. He's been chained. Verse 4 uses the word ought. The ought is the same verb that Paul uses in verse 3 for being chained. Ought means to be bound to something, to be fastened to something, forced to do something. Verse 5 uses the concept of redeeming, buying back the time. You can't see it, but it's actually the word for redemption. Um, in in terms of time. And redemption is the price that would be paid to literally to purchase them and save them from slavery. Verse 6 then uses the word ought again, which is the same thing. Verse 7 uses the word bond servant or slave. Anytime you you see the word servant in the Bible, it can be one of two things. It can be the word deacon 
or it can be the word doulos. Doulos means slave or bondservant. Verse 9 mentions Onsimus. He was a runaway slave from a Christian lord or master named Philemon, in which the entire letter of uh, Philemon is written. Um, verse 10, Paul calls a companion. He's a fellow servant. It's the word slave, bondservant, is again used in verse 12. And then finally in verse 18, Paul says, remember my chains. So as you can see, this, this last uh, phrase in chapter 4, verse 1, we have a master or a Lord who is in heaven is actually quite fitting with what follows in our text today. That Paul means to transition to the entire community of church and call us to be slaves, bondservants of Christ. And so we're going to discuss this passage kind of in four parts. Prayer, walk, encouragement, and greetings. Four parts. Prayer, walk, encouragement, and greetings. Uh, But before we do, um, with using the word slave, I think it's important that we talk about slavery and the differences of what Paul has in mind when he uses the term slave and what many of us think about, right? We tend to think about um, the South. We tend to think about European and um, United States African slavery, and that's what we tend to think about. And so I want to give a couple of points here. This is coming from Greg Beale in his commentary on the Colossians. He points out Christians in the last 200 years have had about four different approaches to the issue of slavery in the Bible. One, some scholars argue that Paul was a social conservative and thus supported the institution of slavery in Rome. Two, others contend that Paul viewed slavery with a philosophical framework that basically said he's more concerned with the inner freedom than the external freedom. Three, others held that ancient slavery, particularly in Rome, was more benign than 19th century slavery, uh, the institution in Europe and the United States. And then four, some regarded first century slavery in Rome as institutionalized violence and inherently evil. And then others kind of mix between these four views. All right, so when they're approaching the Bible, those are kind of the four views. I'm going to lay out two things that will argue for view number three. That ancient slavery was not like 19th century African slavery in the United States and Europe, and it should not be compared with it or associated with it. Um, So first, I want to give nine differences between uh, Greco-Roman slavery, first century slavery, and African slavery. And then I want to talk about two Bible verses that explicitly condemn um, African slavery of uh, European and United States slave trade. So nine differences. This comes from Beale as well. One, slavery was much, much more common among a vaster span of the population. Two, culture and economy came to depend on slavery, though the latter is also true of uh, the Old South. Three, slavery was not limited to one ethnic race in Rome in first century. Four, and this became a motivation for faithful uh, work since such work was eventually rewarded with freedom. Five, conditions of persons in slavery were often better than conditions of those emancipated from slavery in Rome. Six, similarly, large numbers of people would often willingly enter into slavery to better their economic and social welfare, sometimes including payment for their debts, which is where 
why the Bible uses the word bond service is because it's the idea that there's, there's a debt that's owed. They work it off until they pay the debt, and then they're freed from their service. Um, seven, education was encouraged, and slaves carried out important social and political functions. Eight, slaves could own property and even other slaves in first century Roman slavery. Nine, the public assembly of slaves was not prohibited by law. So there's some vast differences. But secondly, I want to just make it very clear that biblically, African slavery and race slavery or chattel slavery of any kind is sinful and heinous to God. Uh, Paul makes this clear in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. He gives a list of sins and he expands it to, to basically anything that's contrary to sound doctrine and the gospel of Jesus. And in this list, he, he labels these sins in four different ways. He calls these people lawless, disobedient, ungodly, and sinners. And what's in this list? He lists off things like lying, murdering, homosexuality, any form of sexual immorality, and then he uses the word enslavers, which is the word andropodistes, which quite literally means man-stealers. Those who go to those who are free, kidnap them, imprison them, and sell them into slavery. Paul explicitly condemns this alongside of murder, sexual morality, and homosexuality, and anything else that can be seen as contrary to sound teaching and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I think that's pretty clear. So anyone who uh, participated in this, Paul is saying they did so sinfully, they did so unlawfully, they did so disobediently, and they did so as ungodly. John condemns this concept of slavery in Revelation 18, 13. Babylon, the enemy of God, right? This is the, the evil city of God, the, against God, is seen as fallen. And in this passage, it describes the merchants and the wealthy who are selling cargo and making trade with this evil Babylon, this city against God. And in the cargo, it lists off some normal things like spices, chariots, animals, horses, things like that. But as you get to the bottom, the very last thing listed off, it says this, and slaves, that is human souls. Or in Greek, bodies, that is human souls. So this business is seen as destroyed when Babylon is judged by God, and those who were doing this business with Babylon are destroyed and condemned by God as well. So to be clear, when we talk about slavery all throughout this passage, we do not intend 19th century United States European uh, race slavery. We should not see slavery in the New Testament as the same thing as slavery in the 19th century, nor at any point should we think that what happened in the 19th century is anything other than heinous and sinful and against God. So I just wanted to clarify that since the big theme of this passage is slavery. Um, so let's look at the points from the text. Point one, we should keep awake and progress evangelism by way of prayer. Keep awake and progress evangelism by way of prayer. This is verses 2 through 4. Christ writes through Paul, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison or in chains, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So verses 2 through 4, uh, older commentaries used to break this down 
uh, 2 through 4 and 5 through 6 is this. 2 through 4 is speaking to God about people. 5 through 6 is speaking to people about God. So in this first section, we have prayer or speaking to God about people. And there's two kinds of prayer that Paul encourages to us in these three verses. First, verse 2. It's for, prayer is for keeping ourselves awake or maintaining watch. It is qualified with thanksgiving, uh, returning us again to the peace of God, which is found in chapters 3, 12 through 17, all the way throughout it. The, so the idea here is the grace of God fills our hearts and manifests itself in prayer with thanksgiving. And uh, this word uh, watchful can mean keep watch or keeping awake, staying alert. Those are kind of the, the ideas here. And so what, what is Paul referencing here? I believe he's alluding to Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. Uh, Matthew 26, 38 and on kind of covers the story. But in verse 38, Jesus says this. So what happens is he has his 12 disciples. He takes three of them, Peter, James, and John, and he takes them a little bit further into the, the garden. And he places them here and he says, I'm going to go over here and pray. Keep watch with me. That's kind of what's going on here. In verse 38, he says this. Jesus said to him, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Jesus goes a little bit further and he prays. He returns to the three and he finds Peter, James, and John sleeping. And he says to Peter, I quote, so could you not watch? Same Greek word that is in our text. Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He then repeats this process three straight times, and each time he comes back, and they're sleeping. And the third time, when he comes back, he just says this, Sleep and take your rest later on. See the hours at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And so this, this, plays, this play on staying awake, keeping watch, sleeping, and prayer is all found in Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. And this is likely what Paul is alluding to. And so Paul's first reason for us to pray is that we might stay awake to God's will and we might uh, strengthen ourselves to resist temptation from Satan's wiles. Um, J.C. Ryle has a uh, wonderful, it's a pamphlet, it's not a book, it's only 39 pages long, uh, a wonderful pamphlet called A Call to Prayer. And I highly recommend it. I have like 18 copies at my house because they cost like $2 on Amazon. So if you want one, just ask me and I'll bring you one. Um, But in this book, he writes, in light of Gethsemane and what happened there, he writes this. He says, You may be very sure that man and women fall in private long before they fall in public. They are backsliders on their knees long before they backslide openly in the eyes of the world. Like Peter, they first disregard the Lord's warning to watch and pray. And then, like Peter, their strength is gone, and in the hour of temptation, they deny their Lord. Three times he fell asleep. Three times he denies Jesus in the very following passage in Luke. To not pray is to fall asleep to God's will and to open ourselves up to Satan's wiles and temptations. And so, therefore, we should remain in prayer with thanksgiving. The second kind of prayer comes from verses 3 through 4 which take the attention off ourselves, and it puts it on those who are spreading the gospel. Paul asks the Colossians to pray that God would open to us a door for the word. What is this? 
declare the mystery of Christ. And open, uh, this analogy or metaphor of opening doors occurs in the New Testament, uh, particularly in Paul and also in Revelation uh, in a, a couple of places. Acts 14, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 uh, Corinthians 2, uh, Revelation. All of these times in which this open door analogy comes, it is an opportunity of evangelism uh, for the word of God to be proclaimed to the lost. And Beale writes this, and I think this is pretty a good, a good quote. What does he mean by open the door? He means pray that God would make effective in the hearts of people the message of the gospel that is preached. So what is this word? Paul says it's the mystery of Christ. And we've already seen this in Colossians. The mystery of Christ has been revealed to all the saints as Christ in you from Colossians 1, 26 through 27. In Colossians 2, 2, the mystery of God is literally called Christ Jesus himself. So what is this mystery that he's talking about? It's union with Christ. It's Christ offering himself up for you and us being united into Christ, one with him, um, in, in coordination with the Christ whom we recite every week. So Paul wants union with Christ by faith through the gospel proclaimed to have an open door, a.k.a. to be effectively proclaimed to those who are hearing it. Another way of saying if God is not there, we preach who you are, you can be forgiven. Paul wants the message that no matter what you have done, who you are, you can be forgiven in Christ Jesus and reconciled to God just by believing the gospel, Jesus and him crucified. He wants that to have effect on those who hear it. And so he asks the church of Colossians to pray for an open door. Verse 4 kind of clarifies even further uh, what, he, what he entails by an open door. He wants it to be effective but it also, he says this, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. The word clear just means make visible or make it plain. Uh, so note that verse 3 ends with Paul mentioning that he is literally in chains, right, on account of the mystery of Christ. And now in verse 4, we have this word ought, which is the same verb, to be in chains, to be uh, bound. And so um, Paul is essentially stating this, I lost my freedom and was put in chains because of the proclaiming of Jesus Christ. Now pray for me to keep proclaiming it and to proclaim it crystal clear to those who hear. Because why? I am bound. I am required. I am fastened to it. I am enslaved. I am imprisoned to do this. Paul is saying, I have literally lost my freedom. Freedom, not freedom. Freedom because of the word, but nonetheless, I have no choice. I am a slave to the word. It is not optional. I must proclaim Christ, and I must proclaim him clearly. Why, Paul? Colossians 4.1, you also have a Lord who is in heaven. So practically here, we might ask some questions for ourselves. Uh, do we pray for one another and each other and ourselves to keep alert and awake to God's will and against Satan's wiles? Do we pray to God to make ours and others' proclamation of the gospel effective in the hearts of those who hear? Do we see ourselves as slaves to the gospel, slaves to Christ? Not merely some, you know, proclamation of the gospel to the lost is not just some add-on that some Christians are uh, called to do, but it is rather the duty of all who bear the name of Christ. Uh, in the household codes, again, the term Lord is used 
eight out of 14 times. And then it's used some more in this passage that we're looking at today. Quite literally meaning this. When we fail in these commands, we demonstrate in those moments of failure disobedience to the lordship of Christ. Or say it positively. How we live in our homes, how we live in our workplaces, and how we pray for each other, and how we share the gospel is a lordship issue. It is the way we manifest Jesus' lordship over our lives with one another. So this should be our goal in how we relate to our spouses, our children, our coworkers, our employees. And it should be our goal in how we pray for each other who are in the church. And we pray for the gospel to spread for those who are not in the church. So let's look at our second point. That was, uh, the first one was talking to God about people. This one now is talking to people about God. So the second point is this, walk and talk in wisdom towards those who do not have in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The theme here is walk in verse 5 and talk in verse 6. Perhaps this is a callback to Colossians 3.17 where it says, and whatever you do in word or deed, or walk and talk, um, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So the idea of slavery and imprisonment is found in these verses as well. The word for best use of time is actually the Greek word redeem. Redeem the time. And then, of course, in verse 6, we have the word ought again, which just means to be bound or fastened to something. Uh, The word redemption is only used a handful of times. Um, Two particular ways of being redeemed is found in Galatians 3.13 and 4.5. And it's in regards of Jesus redeeming us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse and dying on the cross on our behalf. So what exactly does the phrase redeeming the time mean? Because that sounds a little weird. What does it mean? Most people seem to, to take the route of this is making the best use of time. So using your time wisely, um, being wise with our time. Others have even stated that time itself is a slave to sin and evil. And so when we use it to accomplish God's will, we're quite literally redeeming it from Satan, sin, and death. Um, That's a little bit harder uh, for me to process. Another view, which um, I think is the more correct view, um, is that this is a quote from Daniel 2.8. So I I mentioned this uh, two weeks ago, but one of the best reference books in studying the Bible that I've ever used in my life is D.A. Carson's commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament, where he goes through every book of the New Testament, and any time there's an allusion or a quote of the Old Testament, they analyze it. They show the Old Testament context. They show what possibly the New Testament writer's using it for and things like that. In this commentary... He points out that in the Greek Old Testament, this is called the Septuagint, Daniel 2.8 uses the exact wording found here in Colossians. The only other place it's found in the New Testament is Ephesians 5.16, which is a parallel verse. They're, they're, they're saying the same thing. They're quoting uh, Daniel 2.8. So in Daniel 2.8, the phrase is used about the magicians, by the magicians and the wise men, to Nebuchadnezzar. And they're saying this. They're essentially using it like, we need to stall for time in light of Nebuchadnezzar's ultimatum. So Nebuchadnezzar has this vision or dream. He comes to his wise men and his magicians, and he says, you need to interpret this dream for me. 
And they're like, okay, tell us the dream. He's like, no, I need to know this is authentic. You have to tell me the dream and then interpret the dream. And then they're like, oh, yeah, we're in it now. And then they're, you know, they're kind of doing some things. And then Nebuchadnezzar uses the phrase, you're just stalling for time. Right? And then they, they make this last second uh, punt to Daniel. And Daniel asks Nebuchadnezzar for time that he might approach his God. God would reveal the mystery to him. And then he would come and make it clear uh, to Nebuchadnezzar. So that's kind of the, the, back, the background here. So let me read this in a way that might make it a little more sense in Colossians. In this context, Daniel asks for time to seek God, pray for God to reveal a mystery of this dream, so that Daniel then can make it clearly known to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar that's not Neb, um, and thus save the lives of all the magicians and wise men in Babylon. He's asking, what is Paul asking in Colossians? Pray for me that God might open a door. For and so it goes another level. It's like Inception. There's ten, there's ten levels. Uh, Paul now is in prison awaiting a trial for Nero Caesar himself. Nero Caesar is, so the, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, there's these, uh, this statue with different um, metals and, uh, I don't know, what's the word? I don't know. Different metals and layers, and they represent different kingdoms. Rome is one of those kingdoms. Here Paul now is, in the Rome part of the statue, standing before Nero, king of Rome, about to reveal a mystery about Christ to him. And so it, it makes sense why Paul then quotes this. Uh, so uh, redeeming the time here, it's, a, it's to get us to think about the Daniel 2 um, story and think about how we absolutely necessarily need God to reveal to us and to allow us to make it clear to others. Um, but in this case, it's not a mystery about a statue. It's the mystery of Christ himself, though the mystery of the statue was about Christ too. Because at the end, there's a rock that's carved out of the mountain, made with no hands, that crushes the statue. That rock is Christ. So, Daniel 2, it, it applies to verse 6 as well. Paul turns to speech before outsiders. He says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Um, gracious speech is literally words of grace in the Greek. Um, and interesting enough, outside of this potential example, Paul never uses the word grace to mean anything other than the grace of Christ. So we think gracious speech, we tend to think of like kind, soft, gentle, right? Caring speech, not, over, not, not being offensive unnecessarily. But Paul doesn't tend to use the word grace in that manner. So some people argue that what he's really saying here is, is that our words would be full of the gospel, the mystery of Christ. Um, so I take it to mean that. Uh, again, this could also include all of our speech along with our works because obviously you want your speech and your works to set yourself up to have a, uh, a winsome way of sharing the gospel, a clear, visible way of sharing the gospel. Uh, but nonetheless, I think Paul's talking about the gospel. Another way of saying this is the stumbling um, that is caused by us should be what we say, which is Christ, and who we do things for, which is Christ, and not how we say things or how we do things. That's what he means by walking in wisdom. This phrase, seasoned with salt, um, Douglas Moo points out that a lot of the early Jewish rabbis of the first century 
uh, took salt to refer to wisdom. So it's possible, again, he's just carrying on this theme of wisdom, which he started with. Uh, wise walking, wise talking. Some think it's a reference to Matthew 5.13, salt of the earth illusion. G.K. Beale kind of takes this route. He says it's referring to a kind of salt, salt in our words is a kind of preserving and enhancing of our words that then leads one to be interested in what we say and not disinterested or closed off uh, to what we say. Um, so uh, in summary, verse 6 because of grace only being used by Paul in regards to the gospel elsewhere, and because he uses the word ought again, which should bring us back to him wanting a door for the gospel to go uh, open. Because of these two things, it's likely here that we should read this as make sure our deeds and our words set us up to share the gospel with those who do not know Jesus. This word outsiders is those who do not know Jesus. Um, it's people who are not in the church. So let me be uh, practical here. As Americans, we're guaranteed a right to free speech, First Amendment. As Christians, we must remember that we have a Lord who is in heaven, and our speech is not free, but is in his service. Though Americans are encouraged to use speech however they want, Christians are encouraged to make their deeds and their words slaves to Christ and for his service. When we work and we speak to outsiders, we should do so as slaves to Christ, looking for opportunities for the mystery of Christ to be made known and to be visibly uh, proclaimed to them. We should be wise and winsome with our words. Uh, sometimes words are best left unspoken. Uh, sometimes we need to be careful wh what we say. Sometimes boldness and clarity is, is sure when we say things and when we do things, we're doing it before our Lord who is in heaven. We want Christ, well, obviously we don't want him to divide, but we want Christ to be the thing that divides, not something else, not our politics, not our views on um, justice, uh, masks. We could throw a lot of things in there, right? Sports, Tom Brady's going to win today. Um, whether it's in the lobby, Walmart, social media, we want to make sure our words and our deeds are slaves to Christ for the furtherance of the mystery of the gospel of Jesus. Um, and Christ will divide. Uh, look at the cross. There's two thieves on it. One hates him. One asks, remember me when you go to your kingdom. They're looking at literally the gospel, and they have two complete opposite um, responses. Uh, point three. This is verses seven through nine. Encourage one another and check in with one another. Um, Christ writes through Paul, verses seven through nine. Uh, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. And so I don't want to belabor this too much. I'm going to point out a few things, and then we'll, we'll move on to our next and final point. Um, first thing here is there are two workers that are mentioned, Tychicus and Onesimus. Tychicus joins Paul's missionary team. Uh, he's mentioned in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, if you want to look at a, a list of people that are joining Paul. And he seems to stay with them for a good while because he's mentioned in Ephesians, Titus, and then Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy. So he seems to stay with Paul till the end. Um, Paul calls Tychicus a fellow 
servant, which is the word slave, fellow slave, continuing this idea of being a slave to Christ. Interesting enough, when Onesimus is mentioned, who really was a slave, he calls him a faithful and beloved brother. Onesimus is likely on his way back to his earthly master, Philemon, or Philemon, uh, with, with Tychicus, or Tychicus, say that ten times fast, carrying the letter to the Colossians and also the letter to Philemon. Here in the titles, we have a demonstration of the truth of Colossians 3, verse 11. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarians and Scythians, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Though the gospel does not erase social distinction, it transforms social relations within the church. Tychicus is free, and yet he is called a fellow slave of Christ. Onesimus is a slave, and he is called a faithful and beloved brother in Christ. Look at verses uh, 7 through 9. One more comment is the structure on them. Uh, G.K. Beale again points this out. It's a great commentary. You should read G.K. Beale anytime you get a chance. Um, He points out that this forms a chiasm, right? The quick way of understanding this is verse 7 is the bottom of the mountain. It travels up. Verse 8 is the pinnacle of the mountain. It then travels back down to verse 9. Verse 7 and 9 correlate with each other. Verse 8 is what's emphasized at the top. And so what are these uh, signs? Verse 7, it says, tell you all my activities, which in Greek is make known all. Verse 9 ends with a similar phrase. Will make known everything. And so what's the, the two parallel statements? Make known all things. Make known all things about Paul. Verse 8 explains the purpose of this knowledge. Because it starts off with, I have sent him before you all that you all may, might know. So it carries on the know. But then it gives us the purpose. That he may encourage your hearts. Encouragement is the purpose of all this knowledge of what Paul has been doing and what his fellow ministers have been doing. He wants to bring encouragement to the church. So we can take a a step back and look at Remedy Church and examine practically some things that we can do with this. Uh, We should keep in touch with those who are on mission. Uh, So, for example, Courtney was in Asia for a while. She's back. She's now married to Teddy, and they eventually plan to go back to Asia. We should keep up with them. We should make ourselves known the activities that are going on in our church. We should make it known to them and and vice versa. They make it known to us. Why? So that they might be encouraged and that we might be encouraged and we might know how we ought uh, to pray for one another. But you can even go, you know, that's a very specific example. You could go back even further. We should make ourselves known to each other in the church. We need to make sure that we're being honest with what's going on in our lives and share this knowledge. Why? So that we can be encouraged when we see Christ at work. When it's a good thing, you know, we're encouraged. When it's a bad thing, we, we pray for one another, and then hopefully one day we look back and we say, look what Christ did. Knowledge, making each other known, is for the purpose of encouragement and building up uh, the church. Um, so one of the, the challenges of the last members meeting was to try to have dinner or some kind of invite people over at least 12 times during the year with people in the church you don't know very well, right? This is a, a good biblical passage to attach to that challenge and say, why? So that you can make yourself known to them and they can make themselves known to you and you can be encouraged in Christ and build one another 
up. Uh, Colossians 4, 7 through 9 serves to give us a great reason to be diligent to accomplish this uh, challenge from the elders. Um, let's look at verses 10 through 18, the greetings. This is point four. Desire to see our church and other churches unified by the gospel. We should desire to see our church and other church, churches unified by the gospel. Uh, we can break this into four sections. We're going to go quickly through each. 10 through 11 is greetings from Jewish Christians. 12 through 14 is greetings from Greek Christians. 15 through 17 is interchurch partnerships. And then finally in 18, Paul gives his final greeting from himself. Um, so 10 through 11 says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner greets you, and Mark, uh, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, there are only, uh, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. And so three people are named, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice. And uh, they send their greetings to the Colossians. And Aristarchus is likely literally a fellow prisoner with Paul. He's not just like metaphorically. Acts 27, 1 through 2 seems to um, tell us that he was actually in prison with Paul awaiting a trial before Nero Caesar as well. Uh, we don't really know anything about justice following Jesus, and it could get really confusing. It's obvious why he changed his original name, because he's following Jesus, and it could get really confusing, um, likely. Uh, we know quite a bit about Mark, and it's actually encouraging. Mark was Barnabas's cousin. Barnabas is the son of encouragement, and he causes the son of encouragement to break way with the apostle Paul in Acts 15, 36. Mark had abandoned Paul in a city when they were doing ministry. He had left off the ministry for some worldly reason, and Paul then is telling Barnabas, we're not taking your cousin with us this time. He abandoned us. They get into a fight, Paul and Barnabas get into a fight, and they split and go two separate ways. Sound, I mean, it, you know, they weren't like super people, right? They got into a fight, and they split. Later on, even by the time of Colossians, Paul is saying of uh, Mark, welcome him. By the time of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, he goes further as listing John Mark as useful to him in his ministry. There's a reconciliation here. God used their split, and he further used Paul and Mark's reconciliation for, to work with Peter in Rome. God is good. Mark goes on to work with Peter in Rome and is credited by the early church as writing the gospel of Mark, which is Peter's account of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. So this guy who abandons Barnabas and Paul in the midst of ministry, and Paul kind of, eh, I don't want to work with you. He's grabbed up by Barnabas, and by the end of his ministry, he's reconciled with Paul. He writes one of the four Gospels that we still read to this day and know Christ through, um, and becomes useful to Paul. God is powerful. He is great. Um, and this shows us, again, this reconciliation uh, this this uh, phrase, men of the circumcision, um, seems to be referring to uh, Jewish Christians who now follow Paul in his Gentile-centric mission, right? Paul kind of at some point in time in Acts is like, okay, I'm now 
focusing on the Gentiles, the nations. And a lot of Jewish Christians, there was a, a little bit of an argument as to, like, should we do this, right? In Acts 15, there's, like, a church council and all that. Um, but there's only three Jewish Christians who are willing to work alongside Paul in unity to share Christ here. And then Paul, was make, he makes sure to point that out and says, this is a great comfort to me. And so, again, this is a demonstration of how can there be unity and diversity? Well, everyone has their mind on Christ being the Lord who is in heaven and on the mission, spreading the gospel to the nations. That's how they can unite. So verse 12 through 14, uh, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Damas. So Paul now turns to his Gentile, his fellow, uh, these Gentile Christians who are also working with him. Epaphras, Luke, and Damas, all Gentile Christians. Luke is the writer of Luke and Acts. So Paul is working with two of the four gospel writers, which is kind of cool. Um, and then, you know, he, he, goes with, he goes with Paul all the way to the end of Acts 28. John Mark, uh, if John Mark was brought back in reconciliation, we have an opposite example in Damas. Damas here is, is considered a fellow worker. Uh, but in 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 12, Paul tells us that Damas abandoned him. Why? He was, I quote, in love with the present world. It's sad to see Christians walk away from fellowship, the church, and the faith because they are in love with the present world. This world is all they have, and they love it. The hope of the gospel is lost. The view of the world passing away fades from memory, and Christ as the Lord who is in heaven is cast aside as we do what is right in our own eyes, and particularly what is right in the eyes of this present world. Paphras, positive note, he receives two whole verses to himself in 12 and 13. He's a slave of Christ Jesus, and his slave-like ethic and attitude fulfills everything said to the household slaves in chapter 3, 22 through 25. He is described as one who is struggling at all times on behalf of you all in prayers. So that the call of God. In verse 13, Paul then continues to testify to this work ethic. In Greek, it's literally, he had worked with intense desire on behalf of you all. And not only the Colossians, but the two other churches in the surrounding cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis. Epaphras is actually the, the original one who planted uh, the church in Colossians. It wasn't Paul's uh, church plant. And here he is being compared to Paul by Paul himself. His prayer and his work ethic echoes what was spoken by Paul in his prayer in Colossians 1, 3 through 14. And his own struggling, Paul's own struggling in Colossians 1, 28 through chapter 2, verse 5. So much of our lives... This is what we can take from it. So much of our lives are a result of the diligent work of others on our behalf, the diligent prayers of our spiritual mothers and fathers in the faith, and ultimately the grace of God. And this should lead us to pray with thanksgiving. So much of who we are is a result of someone else's labor. Verses 15 through 17. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea 
and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read to you all, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. Paul's now turning to interchurch relationships and partnerships. He asks the Colossians to do as he has done. What? Greet and encourage and make yourself known. He asks the Colossians to greet and encourage and make themselves known to the brothers who are in Laodicea and then also this house church in uh, Nympha's house. Uh, We don't know anything about that actually, uh, where it is. Uh, But beyond greetings and making themselves known, Paul tells them to pass the letter that he's written to the Colossians to the Laodiceans to read out loud to the entire church and to take the letter from the Laodiceans to the Colossians to read out loud to the entire church. We actually don't have the letter of Laodicea. Some people have speculated that it could be uh, Ephesians because Ephesians is a, what's called a circulation letter. Um, we have no evidence. So I think it's probably likely we just haven't found it. Um, but in this greeting and passing on of letters from Paul, uh, Archippus is singled out, and Paul just says, remind him to fulfill the ministry he received in the Lord. Again, reminding us of this idea, we have a Lord who is in heaven. So in these verses, I think we can take from, we're encouraged to form partnerships and relationships with other churches in our area. Um, Each church remains a church with its own authority, congregational and plurality of elders, yet they're still encouraged to partner with each other. What does this look like? Um, Maybe joint Thanksgiving services, uh, future conferences where churches partner uh, to put on together, evangelistic uh, projects where multiple churches work together in accomplishing it, praying for each other as a body. Uh, Every other week, Remedy prays for a local church. We did it today, right? First Baptist. Um, So making sure that we are keeping in touch with their needs and and knowing them and bringing them before God, that the gospel would be opened, um, the door would be opened for the gospel as well. So the assumption being that churches we partner with are uh, submitted to apostolic authority. Note, Paul says, pass on my letter to them and pass on the letter I wrote them to them. We're not talking about just anyone who calls himself a church. We're, calling, we're talking about people who have submitted themselves to the authority of the New Testament and the Old Testament, the Bible. Um, so let's look at our last thing. We're going to land the plane. Paul concludes in verse 18 uh, with his own greeting. He says this, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, Remember my chains, grace be with you. Remember my chains is a call to prayer once again. Um, It's uh, an implicit reminder that Paul's suffering in prison is ultimately a means to benefit the Colossians. um, And it's also a springboard for the continued spread of the gospel. That's what G.K. Beale says. Let's conclude Colossians with another Christ hymn. All right, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Greek for master, 
to the glory of God the Father. Jesus asks us not to do anything he himself didn't already do. Jesus, our Lord and Master who is in heaven, becomes a slave, lives a perfect life, and dies our death for the redemption of us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son. God exalted him and bestows on him the name above all names, Lord, Yahweh. And one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so here's the encouragement for Remedy as we conclude Colossians. Remedy, us who are in Christ, we have the privilege even now to bow our knees and to confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. How we walk in unity together and how we speak to one another and and outsiders manifests Jesus' lordship in our lives. Let your deeds and your words proclaim loudly to the nations, Jesus Christ is Lord, our master who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, um, we ask that we would grow in our obedience to you, obedience that proceeds from faith. I pray that you would just fill us with the Spirit today as we stand and sing to you the great truths of your word back to yourself. Give us thanksgiving on our hearts and let us praise you today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.